Greetings and salutations. Welcome, one and all. You are listening to Culture Bop Selects, the official pop culture and media discussion podcast of Culture Bop. Uh, we've got a great episode for you today. This is episode four, and I am your host, the one and only Bebop Man, Josh McMullen. I am joined today by my co-host for this podcast, the one and only Gil Beasy, Mr. Gilbert Kitchens. How are you doing today, sir? I'm here. We're recording early, so uh, I'm I'm half awake, but uh, we good. We good. Yeah, I had to get a, a Red Bull this morning to uh, make sure that I was up on time because the coffee, for whatever reason, did not uh, start brewing at the time that we had uh, had it set up for. So nice. that was fun. Nice. But um, yeah, fun times. It's good. Uh, good morning energy. I hope. But um, yeah, man. What do you What have you been up to? Uh, not not much. This is going to be a really boring segment every week because the answer is basically not much. Uh, <laughs> work. Uh, still going at this diet thing. Um, it's getting a little easier this second week. Um, yeah, you, uh, so you legit haven't been eating like any vegetables or like nope. anything. It's just meat. Just meat. I'm eating eggs. Nice. Uh, nice. Yeah, I'm down another, since Sunday at least, I'm down almost seven pounds again, so. Oh, damn. Yeah, this shit works. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, I mean, I guess if you cut out like, like vegetables are full of carbs, fruits full of carbs, and then yeah. Also, any yep. diet soda like sugars or anything like that, it's all out. yeah. Plus, again, I'm doing so, the fasting, so I, I've only eaten like oh, three yeah. meals this week. So, Jesus, that's it. Yeah, it's it's, it's weird because you'd think I'd be like weak or whatever, like I'd be feeling it, but because mm-hmm. I'm drinking electrolytes, like I'm actually I'm like going to the park every day and just walking a few miles. Like I'm doing more since I don't even have lunch. At work, I just go to the park and walk on my lunch break. I don't know. I feel great. So, dude, that's awesome. Yeah. What um, what are you drinking? Just water or no? It's it's water with like different salts in it. So it's got like uh, it's got regular salt, some baking soda, and a couple other things in there, magnesium and potassium and stuff. So it just kind of like if you if you don't eat and you get that weak feeling, it's because you need electrolytes. So I'm just doing that and that's keeping me going just fine. So, oh, nice. Yeah. Basically, okay. basically the carnivore aspect of it keeps me in keto, which means my mm-hmm. body's running on fat, not carbs. And so, because now I'm just drinking this shit, I'm, I'm fine. And then my, I'm a walking buffet essentially. Oh, if that makes that's sense. crazy. Yep. I might have to do that because the, so I've tried fasting and I get like six hours, and I'm like, all right, I'm I'm weak. Like I I need to eat something. Yeah, this but, this this drinking this. So there's a guy. If you look him up on YouTube, his name is Cole Robinson. He's a mm-hmm. Canadian guy, and he he came up with this thing. He calls it the snake diet, and so this stuff I'm drinking, he calls it snake juice, whatever. But, uh, just a a warning. I don't know if anybody in the audience would care, but if you look this guy up, he's not family friendly whatsoever. His, his policy is just kind of call you a fucking fat ass and yell at you until you lose weight. So <laughs> it's it's a unique style, but hey, I can't argue with the results. So. True stories, man. That's crazy. Yeah. 
Um, cool. Well, um, oh, and I started uh, Resident Evil 2. If we want to talk about gaming, oh, nice. So I've never played Very a Resident cool. Evil game, so I'm giving it a go. Like, ever? Nope. Not even like any of the spinoffs or anything? Nope. Damn, that's I nuts. S- I see okay. that a game is a horror game, and I go, yeah, no, I'm good. But uh, okay. I kind of want to try. They did. They just released Resident Evil 4 on Oculus. It's in VR. And it's mm, getting yeah. like rave reviews. So I want to try that. Uh, but I figured I might might try two and three. For, I don't know how connected they are, but they were on sale, um, so I grabbed them. So four is tech. Te- oh God, the timeline for Resident Evil is all kinds of fucked up. But basically. One and two are taking place, or no, one takes place, leads into two, two and three take place at the same exact time, and then four, if I remember correctly, is a couple of years after the events of two and three, just following, like, Leon around. And isn't seven, like, before all of them? Uh, you know, I don't know. I actually don't know about seven. Um, it might take place around like the same time as one Hmm. that would make sense. Uh, cause the technology and everything, but yeah, weird. I never even thought about that. Huh? Well, you're in for a treat. Uh, two, I think is, uh, not only it was the PS one game, like super excellent, but I think this remake is fantastic. Yeah. So far it's pretty cool. So, all right. Well, um, I also haven't been doing anything. Nice. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I um, I have weirdly been keeping up with my my thirty one days of Halloween, uh, like really well. So I've gotten twenty two full days in. So I'm almost there. I hope I don't fuck up before. Uh. Before the deadline, or not deadline, but you know what I mean, the finish line, I guess. Um. Well, anyway, how's your so, uh, how's your video going? <laughs> All right, you're funny. Uh, listen, like, so the thing about it is that I get I get stuff in there and I'm like, okay, this is great. Like I, this is set. I don't need to touch this. And then I'll go in and I'll start working on like other parts of the video. And then I'll go back and I'll have like an idea of how to tweak something. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go to tweak it. And it's like, uh, but this won't make sense with the flow of the rest of like, and so I'll, I'll end up instead of just tweaking one little thing, I'll end up tweaking like an entire section. And so like what should have taken me 10 minutes of work, like it snowballs into like an hour worth of work. And it just, uh, in the, in the immortal words of George Lucas, films are never finished. They're abandoned. I mean, He's not wrong. Are you, are you gonna put this out and then put out a special edition in three years with all the, oh uh, yeah, all the accoutrements. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, no, it's it's gonna be coming. I I have to like, I've got pretty much like I'd say like all of all the footage is on the timeline, so it's there. It's just a matter of me feeling comfortable with like the final product and like the first probably. 
I'd say 15 minutes. So basically like the first half of this video, I'm pretty much set with. Like I think it's I think it's good, but like the last 15 to 18 minutes of it, I just like I keep going through and like changing things and like I'm like, "Oh, this will work better." Like this, you know, whatever. So hmm. <sighs> we'll see. Um, it's also the, the horror movie challenge thing has really kind of, uh, I feel like taking a lot of the time. Yeah. It's taken a lot of my free time away. Uh, cause I, I mean, even though it'll be like an hour and a half every night or something like that, like I have to, you know, get upstairs, make dinner for everybody. Like I have to clean certain things. Plus I, I mean, I work my day job and during like my day job or whatever i'll work on stuff for for this show or hunting pixels or it or the video and it's never like i have to have my focus on the day job i can't like spend right my full eight hour shift over here working on the video without like neglecting that sort of thing so um i have been able to work a lot more since I started working from home, but it's still one of those things. It's like, uh, yeah. Gotcha. But yeah. Um, so we are recording this on the 23rd. Uh, I think that this will be the last episode that we have out before Halloween because yeah, we'll record on the 30th. So the next episode won't be out until, the fourth for everyone patrons it'll come out on the first so with that in mind halloween is right here um and i thought it would be nice to dive into a horror movie for the celebration of the holiday and what a what better a way to do it than with my all-time favorite horror flick the holiday themed masterpiece I'm, of course, talking about 1978's Halloween. So, um, I know that you're not a horror <clears throat> horror guy. So, uh, I, I almost feel like I don't need to ask this question, but what was your first exposure to this movie? Uh, I just watched it four hours ago. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, horror is just, it's not, I don't know, I just, it, none of my friends watched them grow, I just never had exposure to any horror movies growing up, like, I didn't have friends that watched horror movies, If when I watched movies with, with my parents, it was never horror, I mean, uh, I don't know, like, some stuff was more, like, suspense or, like, I watched Misery when I was younger, or, like, mm. Jaws, I don't know if people consider that horror, I kind of, it's, I don't know what you'd call that, a monster movie, I don't know. Um, but no, like I just never was around horror. And then the, the, the like two or three horror movies I saw in high school were such garbage that I was like, eh, I'm good. So it's not like I don't, I, it's not like I avoid horror cause I'm like freaked out by it or whatever. I just, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't think about it. Um, but yeah, like this, I, I literally had no, the only spoiler I had for this movie at all. The only thing I even knew was Jamie Lee Curtis is in the sequel, so I guess she makes it out of the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. But really, that's it. I didn't know anything. If, if you would, like, a week ago put a gun to my head and ask me if it was 
who the bad guy in this was, I probably would have said Freddy or Jason because I have no idea. So mm. it's yeah. just well, I mean, guy in a mask that, killing people. I don't know. <laughs> I yeah, I mean that's totally fair. Um, f- so my relationship with horror started when I was really young because. Uh, for as much uh, hate as I deservingly give him, uh, my dad was the guy who introduced me into to the genre. He just loved this shit, and like Halloween was one of his favorite movies growing up as a kid, and like he kind of passed that on to me. Um, I actually think, weirdly enough, one of the first movies I ever saw uh, was Halloween Two. Uh, I had actually never even seen Halloween one. So I had no, like, um, I guess, uh, frame of reference. There we go. That's the phrase I was looking for, uh, for like what was going on in Halloween two, two. I just, I watched that movie and I was like, Oh, this is really great. I wonder what the first one's like. Um, and we ended up getting the first one on VHS. Um, I don't know. It's so weird. Like (laughs) looking back at the way that like things happened to me in my childhood, like we had Halloween two on VHS before we had Halloween on VHS. It like doesn't even make any sense, but, um, but yeah, so I saw this movie probably when I was around 10 or 11 and, um, Hmm. yeah. And it's just, uh, I mean, we'll we'll get into it later, I'm sure, with our final thoughts. But like, this is a perfect movie to me. Um, I there, I was watching it last night, and I wrote down some things in my notes that like, I feel like you could nitpick this movie to death if you really wanted to. <clears throat> but when I'm watching it without like any sort of like, where I'm trying to be critical of it, when I just sit down and watch it, like this movie is just. It's perfection. I I can't find anything wrong with it. I I really do love this movie. Um, and probably some of that's nostalgia, but uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, to get a little bit of uh backstory on this, uh, originally the film was the idea of producer Erwin Yoblins. I, I think that's how you say his last name. Um, and he was, according to an interview, I was reading this and I thought it was kind of, kind of weird. Um, but he said that he was thinking what would make sense in the horror genre and what he wanted to do was make, uh, a film that had the same impact as the exorcist. And, uh, that sounds weird, uh, to me considering like the exorcist was like a, I mean, it was huge when it came out in 73. Uh, I think it, yeah, the box office for it, 40, uh, or $441 million for the exorcist, like huge, huge, uh, raking in. But, uh, I think it also started a sort of almost moral panic, uh, coming out of the seventies and going into the eighties, especially into the eighties, right? Because you get the video nasty era, stuff like that. But I just thought that that was a, a weird, um, thing for him to have said, 
But uh, anyway, he brought the idea to the independent financier, Mustafa Akkad, and basically his idea was for a group of babysitters being stalked by some sort of like evil man, whatever. And then it was at the Milan Film Festival that they met John Carpenter, who was premiering his movie Assault on Precinct 13. And they liked the movie enough that they were like, we want him to do it for us. Uh, And he agreed. But he made it known that he wanted to have full creative control on this thing. And so they acquiesced and he and his then girlfriend, Deborah Hill began working on the script that was called the babysitter murders. And they sent this in their initial draft that they actually wrote in 10 days to Yalons. And he said, this is good, but you know, maybe we can set it around Halloween and we can put it out around Halloween and it'll be a big thing and it'll be great. And so they were like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's, let's kind of retool this. They got it done, um, and when they were told to go back and talk about, you know, Halloween stuff, they drew on the Celtic holiday of Samhain, uh, or at least according to Deborah Hill, they did, where basically the the core idea was to have um, Michael Myers be the embodiment of, like, the old trope of Samhain where the souls of the dead are let loose to wreak havoc on the living. And since, you know, they're the souls of the dead, they're kind of undying and they just, what have you. Um, the, uh, most of the movie was written by, well, it was the both of them, but Deborah Hill, uh, wrote most of the female characters and their dialogue and all of their interactions while the sort of like scary parts and like all of the Dr. Loomis stuff was written by Carpenter. Hmm. Um, I thought that that was really interesting because I sometimes feel like a lot of what's going on with the female cast sounds like it was written by a dude, but I don't know. That's, just me, I guess. Um, I think it, I think it the, actually, I don't know. Not that it sounded totally natural because it's like, I don't know. I thought it worked well and it had a nice contrast between the, now that you say that, that's interesting because as I was watching it, it was like, there's kind of a good contrast between these scenes where it just feels like normal people going about their day. Mm-hmm. And then there's these people tracking a murderer, a psychotic guy, you know, and you know, unknowing kind of thing. I don't know. I thought it felt very natural, but. Oh, I mean, I don't think that it feels off. I think it just, I, especially with modern sensibilities, yeah. stuff from like the 70s doesn't sound natural to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I don't know. Um, so, yeah, they, they got the screenplay done and they shot the movie. It was uh, a 20-day shoot, which is kind of kind of crazy when you think about where modern movies go because modern movies can balloon up to like years, like just like super crazy long shoots. Um, and this whole thing was shot in 20 days. Uh, it was in the, uh, it was in a suburb of Pasadena, I believe. Um, which is, I think we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later when we're talking about like production design and everything. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was shot in a suburb of Pasadena in, like, the middle of May, 
or April, I think. And, um, yeah. So <clears throat> from there, uh, the only thing I, I wanted to touch on before we get into talk about the actual movie itself is the, uh, career of John Carpenter up to this point. Um, Carpenter, this was actually only his third movie. Uh, he, the tube that came before this were, uh, I forget the year that it came out, but it was basically his, uh, student film from, um, film school. It was called dark star, which, uh, you like alien, correct? Yeah. Okay. So the writer of alien, Dan O'Bannon actually, uh, co-wrote that movie with John Carpenter, and they were friends for a really long time. They were actually in a uh, a band together, I think. Um, and uh, it's not very good. I don't think that movie is very good at all. <laughs> um, but then he went on to make uh, Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976, which is, I think, uh, very good and is... It feels a little weird looking at it now because uh, Dark Star is a sort of a sci-fi thing and Assault on Precinct 13 is uh, closer to like a, a, in in aesthetic, it's a sort of grindhouse exploitation film, Mm -hmm. but it feels like a, like, it almost feels like a zombie movie in the last half because it's like, this gang that's trying to like break into this, uh, uh, a, a jail, I guess. I, I mean the precinct 13 or whatever, but like, it's just like legions of them oh. and they're all kind of like faceless and they don't say anything. And it just, it feels like a zombie movie. Weird. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's super weird, but, um, that I think kind of got him the, hook into the horror genre and I've watched like a million interviews with this guy and he never really wanted to make horror movies. He always wanted to make, uh, like Westerns like, um, Howard Hawks. Like he really loved that dude and really wanted to make Westerns. And it's just weird to me that he got roped into making horror movies off of a, more or less a, a Western meets a zombie movie. But, you know, here we are. So, um, all right. So let's go ahead and get into this. Uh, I figured the first place we would start is with the, is with the script. Um, this is where I think we'll probably get the most mileage. But uh, what was your initial thoughts on how the movie is written. It's kind of, um, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, there's really, how do I put this? There's a lot of movies that open themselves up to plot holes because they've got so many threads going at once and there's just a million things happening. Whereas this is, it's pretty straightforward. Um, in just the telling of the story. I mean, it's kind of, you know, one scene after the next, uh, and it lets the suspense build and that be the, the core of the thing instead of like this mystery. I mean, there is the mystery of like Michael Myers and like how he's not dead. Um, 
and there's a lot of stuff with that but like as far as things go it, it all felt like a natural progression of events which is interesting because like i said i've seen some garbage horror movies before where they try to overcomplicate the mystery of them the there's this ancient relic that leads to whatever blah 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 it's so this ancient curse or something whereas this was just no it's a, it's a crazy guy and he just is trying to kill on halloween and and it still lives open some things like I'm not like it's weird that he seemed to be at all at once honoring his sister while recreating the way he murdered her in a way like <laughs> there's still a thing. There's still things to think about. It's just the script itself is it's I don't know. It's pretty straightforward. And again, I think a lot of the characters felt fairly natural. Um, and that's also part of the performances. But. Uh, it, it felt like, except for a little bit at the end there, it felt like something that could happen. It felt plausible. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree with you. Um, there is a, there's a podcast that I listen to, um, that breaks down horror movies in like really great detail called Halloweenies. And they actually got their start, uh, taking on this franchise, but um, I bring them up because they have said on multiple different shows or, or episodes that there is a difference between simple and simplistic and that basically simplistic is like dumbing something down. But simple is just simple. And I think that that is the perfect way to describe this the the plot of this movie it doesn't do anything that really like you have to sit and think to yourself like what is going on or anything like that like when you get into the more um i, I don't want to say elegant because that's not the right word but like when, when you get into the more like um maybe like cerebral slashers like a nightmare on elm street you really have to sit and kind of think about like how would this work or like what the, the premise makes sense, but like how does that affect certain things in the real world? And like, how do I wrap my brain around like what's happening? Is it a dream? Is it not a dream? Stuff like that. And this one just is so straightforward. It's just these kids being stalked by a boogeyman and getting brutally murdered. Right. Um, and I, I really love how simple it is because it doesn't, it, the thing that really, I think makes the script for this one work as compared to the other Halloween movies is Michael Myers is almost like a force of nature in this. He doesn't really have a motive. He just kind of does things. He's just, there and he's just stalking these babysitters and he's just murdering them where you get into like two brings in the weird, like Lori is Michael's sister, uh, twist that doesn't what? really make any fuck. Yeah. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Uh, it, God, I could go on a whole rant about the sequels. What? Like the daughter was killed and then Michael yeah, was taken so off. And then, so they, had another kid or something what well so what they're <laughs> what they say in the second one is that basically they had a baby like his uh his parents had a baby when he was six 
Okay. And for whatever reason, she was at like their grandparents' house or, or something. And so she wasn't there when he murdered his big sister. And later, after he gets put into like the mental hospital or whatever, they can't handle it. And so they put her up for adoption. And she gets adopted in the exact same town, like right down the street. It, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't make any fucking sense. Okay. Uh, now, to be fair to uh, that movie, they were trying to find a reason for uh, Michael to go after her again, and they couldn't think of anything. So the writer said, well, I'm drunk as shit. This sounds like good. Let's do it. It's not enough that she so, got away. That's not enough of a reason for him to go after her. Right? <laughs> it, like, oh, man. It's uh, interesting. It's a fucking mess. But it, it gets even worse when you get into like uh, like four, five, and six is this little almost self-contained trilogy where they try to make it about the actual festival of Samhain and this curse of thorn and how it's actually a curse that was put on Michael that he has to kill like his entire family or something. It is. Do, I'm so it's the complete these... opposite of what's good about this movie in that this exactly. one's simple <laughs> and then they just go completely off the deep end with lore. That's fun. yeah. Uh, it's and some of these some of the other movies I really I really do love like I think that Halloween four which is more or less a remake of this movie oh really fucking works I like and with the exception of the the weird sister twist in two two is like almost as good as this it's really really great but dude they just go so fucking weird with it man like they get so out there and uh, anyway to to bring us back to this it's like this movie works because of how simple it is and i mean you brought up something that i think is is really great and that it's it's almost like something that could happen in real life and like until the very end yeah uh, yeah until the very end but um so the the one thing that I don't think they had any like um thought really because I okay I'm going to go on a weird tangent for just a second. Okay. So I've always well not always but like when I when I started getting into movies and realizing that that's kind of like what I wanted to do. I started like buying books on screenwriting and stuff like that because like I wanted to learn how to write movies. And so there's one thing that I have tried in the past whenever I'm writing something and it never works because it feels like I'm trying to force in things but it's in all of the it's in all of the books that you can ever like write or f read about screenwriting and they tell you that you need to think about the theme that you're going to put in your movie first because if you think about your theme everything else comes naturally and i think that that is complete and utter bullshit that's horrible advice <laughs> That, yeah i i think that what you need to do is you need to write your story you need to get the thought out and then 
then people can put whatever meaning they want to into your work. Because art is not just a, like, like, I don't get to tell, like, okay, hang on. This is, this is also like a weird, like, thing. Because I, the art is that of the artist, right? Like, artists make the art, you interpret the art. So, like, I'm not going to tell a game dev, for instance, that they need to make a game easier. No, they just need to make their game. Right. Like, that's just what they need to do. Filmmakers need to make their movie. I come in after the fact and I imbue meaning if I find any there. Like that's that's the way that I see things. So to get back to this, were there any themes that you could really suss out while you were watching this that were either inherent or like not really thought about whatever in the script? Boobs. Boobs. Um, That's a good one. <laughs> um, no, not not uh, not really. Death, I guess. I don't know. See, this is this is why I don't think you have to start with the theme. And I think this is a problem with a lot of movies now. Is mm-hmm. that they're so tied to this theme and this message they're trying to put out that they're willing to let the script make no sense in a lot of places because they have to get to it the ending that that makes their point, right? Whereas I think mm-hmm. a good writer starts with a good story and develops it. And as they're developing it, they start to realize what's in the script, right? What, what themes are coming out and maybe something, some central thing that kind of ties it all together. But they're focused mm-hmm. on, first and foremost, telling a good story. Um, yes. I think in this case, it, it, it's... See, this is kind of like... okay. So what's the I'm gonna I'm, I'm blanking on his name entirely. The director in the '80s who made all those fucking Rat Pack, high school Brat Pack, whatever. Oh, uh, John Hughes. John Hughes. Okay. A lot of people think John Hughes like really understood teenagers and just captured the whole thing. John Hughes, from what I remember, was like a salesman who decided to go into movies, and because he was a salesman, he knew how to make things that appeal. He made movies that appealed to teenagers. That was the goal. He wasn't trying to represent them. He was trying to make movies that teenagers would see, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I think in this case, in the case of Halloween, it's just some people that made a, a, a fun horror movie. Like, they weren't trying to make a big, bold statement about anything. They weren't trying to, like, have a moral to the story. Um, except for, like... I don't know, maybe if you're having sex in someone else's house, pay attention. Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But, like... That's a good moral lesson. Yes, absolutely. Um, But I I really... I don't know. I don't think there's themes. I don't think there has to be. I don't think that's the point. I think the point of this movie is to just be a fun movie you watch and get some scares out of and, like, that's it. And it doesn't need to be anything more than that. It's perfectly fine. Like, I think, like, if this movie was made today... They would have like it would it, you would have taken this exact same story, but it would have been like, well, Michael Myers was actually he was released by the government because they needed a distraction from something else, and so the government was actually killed. There would have been this whole subplot with like the media covering up the whole thing, and like the government was behind it all, and all. it didn't. That's what it would be today because they would feel they have to make a point about something, but like. This movie is just stands on its own. is It's just a fun time. It's a ninety minute good good time. Just watch it and that's it. Yeah, it doesn't need I, to change I, your I life. Think, 
Yeah, the, I I think you make a a point that kind of like goes to my feelings on Halloween Kills. Actually, like one of the I, I mean, I got to go back to this. The reason this movie fucking works is because it is simple. It doesn't, it's not trying to beat you over the head with like any sort of message or anything like that. It just tells a very simple story. Halloween Kills is this movie that is trying desperately to get you to engage with like political themes. Hmm. And it does not work because the stuff that they're trying to get you to engage with, they didn't write it well enough. So you're sitting there with like a super muddled message about like mob justice. And yeah, like, I heard, I heard it's like a commentary on January 6th, but like, aren't the good guys in this movie, the, the mob. Yeah. Yeah, yeah dude. Like, I will, so, so like, what point are you, what? <laughs> like at, at a certain point, I don't like, I don't know what's like, I don't know when exactly it was that like the, the filming of Halloween kills actually got finished or whatever, but like it having come out now, I totally 100% see parallels between what someone would be trying to say about like the, the January 6th, uh, like capital thing or whatever. But it doesn't make sense because the mob in your movie is trying to take down Donald uh, or is trying to take down Michael Myers and Michael Myers is the one who incited the mob. So in this instance, if you're trying to evoke that imagery, you're saying that the mob was trying to kill Donald Trump, but that doesn't work for what you're trying to say. And then I've also heard in interviews, like Jamie Lee Curtis is sitting there and being like, yeah, it dovetails really nicely and kind of has like this meta commentary on like the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm like, so your mob is trying to kill George Floyd? <laughs> like, what? I feel like Did actors these days in the last couple of years are just like encouraged to go say stupid things that make no sense to get <sighs> headlines. Actors Where it's like are fucking insufferable. It's like uh, Zoe Kravitz for the new the Batman movie. She said mm -hmm. something about she was like, "Well, I just want to make sure that my Catwoman isn't sexualized by fans, that, that they don't view her sexually." And it's like you're wearing leather tights. What do you want? Like, serious? Yeah. Have you seen yourself in this movie? It's like <laughs> they're, they're just told to, or like with with James Bond, right? Every single time a Bond movie comes out, you get the dumbass actress who plays the Bond girl being like, "Well, my Bond girl's different from all the rest because she sticks up for herself and she knows how to use a gun." And it's like that's like ninety percent of the Bond girls in all of the movies. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's like you've never seen a fucking Bond movie right. before. So like, I feel like actors these days are just—I don't know if they're like they just think they need to say something or they're being encouraged to say things because it's like free marketing when they say something like that. Cause then the left props it up as good and the right props it up as bad or vice versa. Like whatever, like I don't know what's going on, but like, yeah, it's no, it's, yeah. it's fucking stupid. Uh, wh but... What do you think they said in interviews back in 1978? Oh, it's a fun time. Right? You should go see it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Dude. <laughs> Um, so with all of that said, I, I do think that there is something that you can glean from this movie and it has to do with responsibility. Hmm. When you look at what's going on, the two big characters that survive are Laurie and Dr. Loomis. And both of them are going on some sort of like, 
they operate on some sort of like responsibility with Lori. It's a responsibility to her job as a babysitter and to the kids. And with Dr. Loomis, it's really his responsibility to, I guess, like society and like this small town, because everyone who dies in this movie is really shirking their responsibility. Like if you think about Annie, she is supposed to be babysitting this little girl. And then she goes off to like fuck her boyfriend and she dies because of that. Or like Bob and Linda, both of them, they are, I I don't know that they're necessarily supposed to be doing anything on Halloween night, but like you hear Linda earlier in the movie complaining about the stuff that she has to do. Like she has to learn these new chairs and then she's got the game and like, she's complaining about her, I mean, for lack of a better term responsibility and she ends up dying And I feel like that's something that, like, you can really, like, when you watch it, you don't necessarily, like, think about. But, like, when you break it down and you look at the plot, it's there. You can interpret it that way if you want to. But I don't know that they necessarily were trying to imbue that message in the script. Yeah, and there's (laughs) also that bit at the beginning where uh, Lori mentioned she forgot one of her textbooks. And the other one's oh, yeah, like, I always yeah. forget all my textbooks. And it's like, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah. and from what I gather, taking my knowledge, my deep knowledge of horror movies coming from this and Cabin <laughs> in the Woods, I get the idea that it's a common horror trope to have the, the goody two-shoes kind of make it, like the, or something like that. Like the, the one that's kind of, like you say, responsible, like that's kind of a trope is that the responsible one makes it, whereas the teenagers go off to fuck in the woods and get killed or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny that you actually mentioned that because up until this point that's not necessarily how horror movies and exploitation movies worked. It wasn't necessarily that like the goody two shoes or whatever would be the one who survives. Like it before this it would be like they were actually one of the first ones to go hmm. and it was around like this and uh, I'd say probably Black Christmas that came out like two years before this, I want to say it was like 76 that black Christmas came out. Um, it was around then that like the quote unquote goody two shoes or like the, the virgin or what have you was the one who survived. And that I, I think for, for as much as I like about this movie and, and, and black Christmas, these movies unfortunately led to the tropes that you see all throughout the 80s, 90s, and and 2000s. I think it's kind of started to change in the last, like, 10 years or so, where you get movies like Hereditary, where it's, like, a mom who was stricken by grief, and it's not, like, some, like, virginal whatever. Or you get, like, I don't know, I'm trying to... Like, It Follows, which is a movie that is very much a, not about, like, a a virgin or even necessarily a goody two shoes like this this girl's (laughs) stds is what i heard yeah i mean it's a metaphor for yeah yeah something like that Um, i don't know that's what i heard i don't know but you i i think you look at like movies more recently and like they're they're getting away from that Hmm. um but yeah like unfortunately this is one of the movies that kind of bred that sort of thing and i think it kind of if, if I had to guess, again, having not seen much of anything, if I had to guess, it would be that movies kind of shifted from 
the premise doesn't really matter. Like, yeah, sure, we'll have the jock and the virgin and the whatever, the cheerleader or whatever. Uh, we'll have all these tropes because the point is you're going to see this scary movie where people get killed in brutal ways. It's not to ha tell a deep story of whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe that's why it changed now where people are trying to, I don't know, maybe mature the art form to try to have more intricate stories. I guess, or more, more. I, I would definitely say so. Yeah, something like that. So, <clears throat> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that was a pretty thorough breakdown of the script. Let's get into like the actual filmmaking itself. And I wrote set design and costume design in here because I I feel like it's important to take a look at these things, um, not necessarily in a critical lens, but I think to kind of look at what they had to do because I feel like a lot of movies now in the horror genre get these really big budgets and they don't know what to do with them. Mm. Whereas, so this movie had a budget of around $300,000. Yeah. I, in 1978, that's still like, that's still low, right? right? Like we think of $300,000 a day and like no movie is made for that. But like even in 1978, this was a low figure and to like, work with. what did 250,000 of that go to Donald Pleasance? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it did. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so um, like not only was it a low like budget for them to work with, but they were shooting this in May. And I think my, my first question to you is like, did it, the one thing that I always take away from this movie is it feels like a movie that is set in a small town in the Midwest during Halloween. It doesn't feel like it's a movie that was made in Pasadena in the middle of summer. Interesting. I, so, I, I, I totally did not know. I mean, Midwest is Midwest. So like Texas to Indiana, like you're still going to, you're yeah. still in the middle of the country. But like, I did not realize until you said it, that it was shot in Texas. I totally bought that it was in the Midwest, like Indiana. Um, that said, I made it like three scenes into this movie. And then I was like, this is remarkably green. And then I went on Wikipedia yeah. and went, oh, they shot it in May. And then as I was watching the movie, I was like, I guess it's Halloween because they like threw some jack-o'-lanterns everywhere. Like, yeah. Which yeah. again, they shot it in 20 days. It's like, whatever. I got it. I was, it didn't distract me too much. It was just like, there was a moment where I was like, they didn't shoot this at Halloween, did they? And the other thing too is like now movies take so long, especially in post-production that you could mm -hmm. just like, like then they shot this in May and released it in October which is yeah. insane. Now you would just shoot it in October and then it would go through a year of pre-production or post-production and then come out in October. So you would just shoot it in the fall. Otherwise they would have just been sitting on this movie for a year and a half to wait for the next whatever, or a year to wait for, you know, shoot it in October and wait. Um, but I mean, it, it wasn't like, it wasn't distracting. I just did happen to notice a lot of green trees and not a lot of leaves on the ground, but yeah, it wasn't, you know, it was what it was. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, like I said, I, I think that the, 
this movie for whatever reason. Like you, I, I did notice it again. Like, and I, I guess I kind of subconsciously notice it every time I watch this movie, but like, yeah, you, when it gets into Haddonfield, 1978, it is green. Like really like it looks like the, you know, the, the lawns are all like freshly mowed. And I, and I know that's like, whatever, like, I don't feel like around this time, there are a lot of people outside doing yard work. Mm. I, I mean, I could be wrong and maybe I've just never noticed it, but like, it's not something that I see happening. Like people don't go out and manicure their lawns during the fall and the, in the winter. Right. But like the lawns are all sweat, like, kept clean the trees are all bright and green and like the so it's there right Mm -hmm. they made it in 78 during the summer whatever but like even with like just like little things like the jack-o'-lanterns or like they they had actually make the the like brown and orange and yellow leaves out of paper and scatter them along like the sidewalks (laughs) and stuff and like that just those little bits of like attention to detail or like, uh, I think it's only really in like maybe two or three scenes, but you see trick or treaters. Like you see kids in costumes running around doing stuff. And for, I mean, between that and like the fact that like, I feel like the movie and, and we'll get into this in like the, the sort of directing thing, but like, it has a very strong contrast between the bright oranges and like the deep blues of like the night. And I feel like the whole movie just like I watch it and I feel like if I'm, if I'm watching it and say like the middle of summer, I can almost like instinctually feel like the kind of like cold fall weather. Hmm. And like, I can hear like kids trick or treating. Like, does that, does that make sense? Yeah. And I will say, too, that you mentioned, you know, the manicured lawns and all that. I do think that actually adds to the movie in a way because it, it makes it this innocent little town. Yeah. Where now there's this creepy guy roaming around. It kind of creates a contrast there. So I think even that works in the movie's favor. So, like I said, I don't think whether or not you buy that they shot it in fall I don't think it really distracts from the movie at all. It's just kind of, you may notice it and kind of go, huh, and then just go back to watching the movie. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's enough there. And really, especially in the second half of the movie, most of the scenes are indoors anyways, and they're, you know, carving a jack-o'-lantern and watching horror movies and whatever. So it's, it is what it is. Um, yeah. At at night, you're not going to notice the color of the leaves on the trees. So yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I will say, I don't know, maybe this would be more in cinematography, I guess, but uh, talking about the sets, I did, I I really did like how, especially at the end on that final street or the last half of the movie, whatever, with the two houses, you really got a sense of the space. They did a really good Mm -hmm. job of making you feel like you understood kind of the layout of these houses and where everybody was and and how this house can view across the street and all that stuff. So you knew as each of the pieces was moving into place, you could tell it, it built the tension because you, you understood where everybody was in relation to each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually funny. You mentioned that. Cause I was talking earlier about like little things that like you could nitpick about. And there's a line in here where Lori says something about like, 
oh, I'm babysitting at the Wallaces. It's three houses down. Yeah. And then it's right across, across the, the street. street. <laughs> Maybe there's a cul-de-sac. We don't know. It could go yeah. around. I don't know. But um, but yeah, I I do agree with that, and I think that that is a, definitely a good way to to get into like the directing here. Uh, it feels like, like you said, like you can tell exactly where everything is kind of laid out. Uh, there is another one, another thing that I I would nitpick, and I noticed it again, and it is something that like. <laughs> Again, if I'm watching this movie, I'm I'm in it. I don't really care. But like when I look at it with like a, a very like I need to like critique this. I need to whatever. The Myers house where Doctor Loomis is waiting the entire movie for for Michael to come back home. He's sitting there, and it's like all night. And then he turns around and he notices the car, mm-hmm. and it's like the car's been there like the entire night. Like it, it, he, Michael literally parked the car to get out and continue stalking Annie. <laughs> like, so you didn't notice this car until just now. Yeah. Like what's, but anyway, um, outside of like a, a few little goofs like that, I think, I think you're a hundred percent right. I think that the direction here really allows you to see kind of like, <clears throat> I think it's like, you can tell that the town is small. Like the, the fact that you like see them walking home from the school. And then when they're kind of like driving around, they get from like the neighborhood into like the sort of like city square where like the, um, the hardware shop is and everything. And it just feels like it's a small town in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah, totally. Like, like that, that felt like little towns, even in Georgia, like little towns I've driven through, um, which I guess if they shot in a small town, it was, but yeah, it, like I said, that, like all of that builds this contrast against Michael Myers because you're, you're getting this creepy man in this innocent little nice, pleasant town, uh, where the worst thing that happens is the kids smoke a joint while they're driving. Like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's just and 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 it's so innocent to the point that the the cop the the sheriff blames everything on kids because like there's no real crime here it was probably just kids pulling a prank or whatever which is funny to me because apparently uh he stole a mask and some rope and a knife and he's like eh, it's probably just kids it's like <laughs> what like that doesn't set off alarm bells for you. Because at first he was like, I was like, okay, yeah, the kids stole masks for Halloween, whatever. They need a mask, whatever. Okay, fine. And then a rope. Okay, well, what are kids gonna do with a rope? And then a knife, because you know Halloween stores sell like real knives and stuff. So, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where he where like what hardware store are you going into where they sell knives? Yeah. <laughs> hardware store that sells Halloween masks. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Halloween mask and knives. Yeah. What the fuck? Um, but yeah, but still like, I think it, it, the way he's like, yeah, it was probably kids. Like that just tells you how nothing happens in this town. Nothing. It's just an <clears throat> yeah. innocent little nothing town. And you get that from the visuals and the dialogue and, and all that stuff. And it works well to build the, the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, one uh one thing that I wanted to to maybe get your take on was um 
So the one thing that I really like about this movie in particular, as opposed to say like the, even like the rest of the sequels uh, to, to Halloween or like the Friday the 13th or the Nightmare on Elm Streets or, you know, any of the glut of like slashers that came out in the 80s. I really feel like they did a really good job of making Michael feel like like a almost like a ghost. Like he like there's the one scene where uh, Laurie sees him, you know, from behind the bush and then he just kind of disappears. And admittedly, you know, he has time to walk away or whatever. And I assume that that's what he does. But like when he gets up or when uh, Annie and Laurie get up there, you know, he's gone. Or you take a look at like the scene where, um, uh, oh God, Tommy is looking out the window and he sees Michael like standing in the yard of like the, the Wallace house. Mm -hmm. And then like, the next scene, like he goes to get Lori and then she comes and looks and like, he's gone. And I, I feel like Michael is almost like a, like a ghostly type presence in this movie. And I think that they really did a good job of like building the tension of like, not really knowing whether he is a man or whether he's like, you know, they refer to him as the boogeyman the entire movie. Yeah. Um, so how did that work for you? Yeah, the only the only time it didn't work uh, was because like the whole first half of the movie, he's following uh, Lori around, right? He's standing outside her school, staring right at her. He's standing in her yard. He's behind the bush. He's all over the place, right? And then mm-hmm. that night when the kid is like, the boogeyman's out there. She's like, there's no one out there. That's ridiculous. What are you talking about? It's like, you've been followed all day. By a man in a creepy mask. You're not going to, like, take it seriously? <laughs> but Or, like, when they're driving to up to the house and, like, he's in a car, like, six feet behind them. It's like nobody looked in the mirror. You didn't recognize the car yeah. back there. But still, again, little nitpicky things. But, like, yeah, I did, I did, like, especially, like, when you know a kill's coming. Like, how the person just, you know, they'll walk past a door and nobody's there. And then, uh as they just kind of shift around, whatever, you know, getting something in the kitchen, move around. Now he's in the door frame, but then they kind of look and he's gone. It, yeah. it was really good. Uh, and then I think the shot I really liked the most was at the, at the, uh, it was somewhere at the end. I can't remember exactly where it was, but there's a shot where Lori is like crying by a door frame and it's just a, just darkness and you slowly oh, yeah. see the mask fade in. I thought they did really good on that shot. <laughs> Yeah, like it wasn't it wasn't a jump scare. One of my favorites. Yeah, it wasn't a jump scare. It was just slowly fading in the mask. I thought that was really good. Um But yeah, it is this creepy it, it's like a it's like a, a really good hunter waiting for the exact right moment. Right? And so that yeah. is it gives you the feeling of you're watching this helpless prey that's just they don't even know they're just waiting to for the right moment to be killed. Like they don't even realize they're about to die. They're just oblivious mm-hmm. completely because he's just so good at it yeah um i did think it was interesting yeah. sometimes he went for a choke when he had the knife oh yeah yeah but, like the the entire like kill sequence with annie in the car yeah. like he's choking her out and then he's finally just like yeah fuck this <laughs> yeah. <laughs> brings the knife up to finish the job he did the same thing yeah with, that uh, is strange he did the same thing with uh what was the 
was the the boyfriend the oh bob bob is that his name bob oh yeah where he's like holding him and choking him the yeah. entire time and then he yeah that was another minor nitpick because he stabbed him in the stomach and it was enough to hold him up and i was just like doing the mental math and i was like there is like a half inch of that knife yeah. in the wood <laughs> yeah. there's no yeah. way that body's held up but still cool kill but but uh yeah or when you also think consider that it's not like even like a fully wooden door, it's like one of those like uh, like pantry doors with like the slats. Yeah. So it's not even like a real wood door. How the fuck did that make sense? But right. But it almost um, it almost kind of seems like maybe as the film goes on, he's getting more pleasure out of the kill. I don't know. Like he's prolonging it. Yeah. I don't know. No, I I totally get that for sure. I and I I feel like there's a sort of like like. Uh, again, this really gets into it with like the slashers of the eighties, but there's this sort of like uh psychosexual like relationship between Michael and his prey in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like, you, you know, obviously you get the very beginning where he's killing his sister and she's totally like naked. I think maybe she has panties on or something. Uh, oh, actually, hang on before we get into this. Did you, th- cause I timed it out last night. Did you, did it like break your brain at all that like they go upstairs to have sex and then Oh yeah, the timing Michael, was like completely fucked. I was like dude, it's like yo he's up there for a minute. Like are you seriously like a 30 second champ? Like what's going on here? I don't know. Here? And what did he say why he left? No no, he just leaves. He's like okay, I got to get out of here. Cuz I guess the parents <laughs> were coming back, but it was like I don't even know cuz it was like the, the he left and I was like Dude, you're going up the stairs really slow. That dude's going to walk right back in any second now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the, the timing on that scene was like very bizarre. But I mean, literally uh, yeah. from the time they walk in the door to the time he leaves is like two minutes, like three minutes maybe. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But uh, uh, well, anyway, yeah. but yeah, like so you you start the movie off with that, and then like there's like a weird like. I don't want to say intimacy, but like when he kills Annie in the car, all of the windows are fogged up, which kind of evokes that sort of like having sex in your car thing. And, or, you know, Linda, when she dies again, she's, uh, she's naked, but like he's dressed as her boyfriend, you know, with the glasses on the, on the sheet. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like as the movie goes on, or, well, not necessarily as it goes on, but like there is a weird, like, dichotomy between like what's actually happening on screen versus like this almost almost sexual nature of it i will say i got a good laugh i was like this is so unnecessary where she spills butter on her shirt and just strips naked i was like this is kind of an overreaction i don't like and also you've got to do the laundry now you don't have another shirt or something like what yeah uh i mean she Uh, clearly did she put one on but it was like She's like, oh, damn it, I spilled butter. Strip. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> okay. All right, sure. Yeah, whatever. Go for it. But Maybe that's what they had to do in the 70s, man. I, I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I again, I this is one of those things, like, I, I don't feel like it was a theme. I feel like this was a, uh, I don't know, tits are fun. People like seeing that in movies, so let's let's <laughs> yeah. get the shirts off. Let's have the teenagers fucking because like the the kids will want to go see that. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just a fun movie. I don't know. Like, it didn't have you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I absolutely. I mean, talking about the direction, I think that one of the creepiest moments in this movie is the is the Linda death because it's a matter of like this guy is there and you think it's your boyfriend, but it's not your boyfriend, and like uh, that you're that it was creepy, but that made me fucking crack up too seeing him stand there oh. with the sheet with the glasses on. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that is fucking genius. <laughs> Dude, I, I that scene I, I really love. I also love her reaction where she's like she like pulls down the blankets and she's like, "Do you see anything you like?" And he's just like standing, nothing. Yeah, no, absolutely <laughs> nothing. Uh, uh, but they, uh, yeah. Oh, well, I'm thinking about it too when Mike kills the sister at the beginning. I got a laugh out of it because like he's stabbing her right, and then he mm-hmm. looks up at the knife. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what's going on? And then he cuts back, and now there's blood all over her. So it's like clearly they like pulled the camera up so the actress could like rub some fake blood on her. And then you yeah. know, it pans back, and oh, she's bloody because of the stabs. Um, but again, this you know whatever budget, what it's fun. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so it's actually funny about that scene in particular. So it was all done on Steadicam, right? So mm-hmm. while they were up, and it, they they actually legitimately did do it in one take. Oh yeah. So. excuse me so while he's upstairs doing all of the stuff like finding the mask and killing the sister and stuff like that the actual entire cast and crew that was on set that day had to go down and like reset everything to have like the wires out of the way and shit like that so that when he came back downstairs it looks like nothing's there you didn't see everything trailing behind Exactly. It's wow. really, really fucking awesome stuff. And that was, I, there was a point at that opening that I was like, oh, this is like an in-depth one shot. Like, <laughs> they're going for it. Um, yeah. And I did like, because I didn't know anything about the beginning, so I did like that it ended up being a kid, because when he goes to pick up, uh, not pick up the knife, when he picks up the mask, it's a little wonky where you see the arm reach down for the mask, but I was like, that's not a grown man's arm. <laughs> I didn't even think yeah. about the height the whole movie, the, the whole scene. Like I wasn't even thinking about how tall he was. I was just like looking at the, the arm. I was like, that looks weird. But uh, yeah, uh, so that was actually um, that was Deborah Hill's uh, arm and hand. Oh, that wasn't the kid. That was not. Yeah, that was not. Uh, that was not a kid. Oh. That was uh, Deborah Hill. I guess that made it easier to you know you're not having to have a kid rely on this or rely on a kid for this one take. But yeah, <laughs> interesting. Um, man, we got off on a weird tangent there. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Okay. So I think the, the next thing to maybe talk about is, um, the, I mean, we kind of touched on it, the cinematography from Dean Cundy, you know, we talked about the, the one shot where the, the mask just kind of appears out of the blackness. But uh, one thing I wanted to, to bring up again is I do think that this film is just gorgeous. Like it's a lot of wide angles, but like it's like almost pur- purposeful. It's so that you can tell everything that's kind of going around in the scenes. And I love the lighting. Like the again, the contrast between like the oranges and the blues just really works for me. Yeah. Um, and I, I, it's kind of there's something about the look of the film and the way it's shot. I'm sure there's plenty of people that would disagree, but a lot of the shots just kind of have a timeless look to them. Like they. Mm-hmm. It, it looks good. Like there were actually some shots where I was thinking, not that it's the same resolution or whatever, but I was, I was thinking almost like, man, you could take like a, a few thousand dollars and like 
an iPhone and shoot this movie now. Like, why aren't people making oh, yeah. things like this now? Because you could totally do it. Just get a house and yep. an iPhone and a little uh, Steadicam holder for it. Um, but yeah, like there's there's some shots that just they don't feel dated. They don't. It doesn't feel like a '78 movie. It doesn't feel restricted outside of like obviously the the way people are dressed and and objects in the picture. It's just it was it, it felt uh, very night pleasantly shot almost. Um, yeah. And the one thing that did stand out apart from the mask coming out of the, the blackness, um, I don't know. It felt weird. I didn't know what they were trying to communicate. It was just gorgeous shots of from the back seat as Lori and Annie were driving with like mm-hmm. the sunlight coming through. Oh yeah. And it almost yeah. felt like they just like that didn't have a purpose to be in there. They were just like, Oh, we got the sun there right now. We can get this shot. It's going to look really good. Um, well, so you know what's really funny about you saying it doesn't look like it has a purpose. They that whole sequence uh, with like the the them talking about uh, Ben Tramer and like Lori having a crush mm-hmm. and like the sunlight and all that stuff. They shot that because when you see like the um, the part where they they talk to Annie's dad, the sheriff, mm-hmm. and then the next scene where they're arriving at the Wallaces, it's like really bright sunny day oh. and then complete pitch black so they were like well we've got to have something to show that the sun's going so they're trying to have continuity there gotcha that's yeah. interesting because it definitely i was just looking at those shots and being like wow this looks really good like they they yeah. they, <laughs> yeah. they framed these two really well with the lights coming through um yeah that's interesting i didn't think about that because it's like uh it's funny how movies do that because like i'm sure you know that you know the dark knight rises uh, oh yeah there's the bank yeah. robbery in the middle of the day or the the stock exchange robbery mm-hmm. which the stock exchange closes at like 5 p.m so it's like the middle of the day and then they get chased and they go through a tunnel and when they come out the other end of the tunnel it's the middle of the night yeah and it's because batman <laughs> yeah. looks cooler at night so they had to have it at night so it's like they just here's a tunnel and now nobody notices that the time of day is completely changed um yeah so that's actually really cool that they did that that they were thinking about that continuity as they went through. Yeah, that's something that doesn't get really, I think, thought about a lot in modern movies, unfortunately. Um, I think the the next thing probably is to talk about the editing. There's not much to say here, I don't think, uh, other than it's edited competently. It, yeah. Um, it does its job. It, uh Again, the story is really simple, so it's not like there's any tricky flashback stuff going on. It just kind of was what it was. And as far as that, I would say the editing was invisible. I wasn't thinking about it, which is exactly what editing should be. Yeah, I 100% There was no cuts in the movie where I was like, why they cut to that? Or why they they doing that? It just all flowed. Didn't even think about it until just now. So, yep, yep. The only the only thing I wanted to bring up with with this in particular, and I think it kind of goes to like the direction as well, is I do genuinely love the final like 30 seconds of this movie where it cuts around from like it starts with Loomis. Right. And he has just discovered that Michael's gone or whatever. And it cuts to that place where Michael was. And then it cuts to all of the other places where Michael was throughout the film. Yeah. Almost kind of like a where is he hiding or. Yeah, exactly. And it's like cut there with like the breathing of like 
from inside the mask. And I just, I love that final piece. Um, Oh, actually, hang on. There is one one other part that I wanted to bring up that I, I think is just, it's so unnerving. Like, it's not, I, I don't want to call it scary, but it's just really, like, kind of, like, makes my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. And it's the scene after Lori drops off the key at the Myers place, and she's walking down the sidewalk, and then you just see Michael standing behind her, like, and you hear his breathing. Yeah. I, ugh, ugh. Creepy stuff. Um, but the, the next thing I think to talk about is, is the iconic score. Um, I think even if you've never seen this movie, you've heard the Halloween theme before. Um, all, all two pieces of music. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's like four, but, but yeah, uh, the, so this was, um, actually written by, uh, John Carpenter as well. He did a lot of the duties here. Um, and he based it on the, I think he said it's three, five, uh, time signature or five, four or something like that. It's in five. That yeah. his, okay. Uh, but it was something that his, um, his father had actually taught him, uh, as a child, um, on, on the bongos or something like that. Um, I think this score is wonderful. Uh, there are little bits that like, I still pick up on like, and I've seen this movie probably like 20 times. Like this time there were like, I, I don't remember exact scenes, but there were points in this movie where I was like, I do not like remember this being part of this song. Um, but, uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So I like this. So the five four, I, I I caught onto that really quick, um, because this is what my brain does is start counting it. So most music is in four four. You just count mm-hmm. it one two three four one two three four whatever, and that's what that's what most people are just conditioned to think is feels natural. It's because what most of our music is in. So when you put it in five four, it gives an it, it, it can be used different ways. Like the mission impossible theme is in five and it makes it more exciting and, and mysterious. But in this case it's used because it's unnerving because there's something off about the rhythm. Even if you don't know anything about music, it's not in four. And that kind of subconsciously tells your brain something is off about this because it can't mm. quite track the rhythm. Even if you just sat there counting, you obviously could, you could count it. It's just, it, it, it makes it unnerving and makes it feel uneasy and just spooky, I guess. And so mm-hmm. I, I did like that they did that. That's just kind of a music nerd thing. Um, yeah. It's... Yeah. Uh, the one thing I, I want to point out as, as a fan of, of the Halloween movies is that I think that the, the themes here are used the most effectively in this movie. Um, when you get into later sequels, especially like even in four, which is a movie that I like the Halloween theme in, in the 78 version is, is used almost as like a, like a threat almost Hmm. like, I don't think that it ever actually like is used when actual violence is happening. It's always is like a threat of violence that like something is about to happen. I don't, I don't know and, if how often it was used in horror movies before, 
but I mm-hmm. definitely had a thought that it felt like it might have been inspired by Jaws. Where oh, okay, I can see that when you're when when you're just watching Annie walk around the kitchen ripping her shirt off because it got butter on it, right? There, <laughs> there's like no music, but then you're getting mm-hmm. Michael's perspective, and now there's creepy music, and it kind of mm. because you're not you're not necessarily seeing him sometimes it's his POV whatever, um, it kind of adds to the creepiness, which is what they did in Jaws where okay, we just have a puppet and we can't even show it most of the time because it's just a cheap-looking puppet. So they use the music to create the tension and you kind of get the picture as to what all is going on. I felt like they kind of did that here where they're increasing the tension little by little by every time you, you, you cut to Michael's perspective, you're getting that theme building and building again. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting how they did that because I did notice that every time you cut back to the, the victim there was nothing it, it like faded back out and then faded back in as you're back into creepy land with the killer. Yeah. That's, uh, I, that's something I never even noticed. That's, that's good. <laughs> I like so that. I don't know if it was inspired by jaws or what, like that, that, that usage of it, but that that's yeah. what it made me think of anyways. Yeah. That's crazy. I, that is definitely something I never even remotely caught on to, but yeah, that's, that's good stuff. Um, yeah, the only, th- uh, the only thing I wanted to add is like, I, I do think that like it is overused, uh, in later movies and it's not used correctly. Um, it just like here, it really is like, it is authentically like creepy. Yeah. Uh, and it almost gets laughable in later sequels where they just don't know how to utilize it correctly. It's like a, it's like a reverse James Bond. Because, like, <laughs> in Dr. No, the first time, I mean, not the first time, but, like, when you hear the big, bold, ba-da-da-da, it's Bond is checking into a hotel. Like, they didn't know how to use it yet. <laughs> like, they didn't. Yeah. And then as the movies go on, they found better places to put it, whereas it sounds like with Halloween, it's like they nailed it in the first movie and then just kind of were like, well, we got to put the music in here, so just do it. Yeah. <sighs> People filmmakers uh speaking of which uh, i think the last thing we'll get to is we'll talk about the characters and the acting i think the first two we can kind of group together because uh, i don't have much to say about them other than the fact that like child acting has gotten so much better <laughs> they weren't the awful years. for the 70s yeah yeah they could have been much much worse I uh, I do 100% agree with that. A lot of, like, uh, so Kyle Richards was Lindsay Wallace and Brian Andrews was Tommy Doyle. It's actually, Brian Andrews, I don't think has done much else after this. I'm pretty sure he's only uh, maybe done, like, three or four other movies. But he, um, he went on to do, like, uh, I think he went on to be, like, a teacher or something like that. Um, but anyway, uh, Kyle Richards actually is in Halloween kills. She has continued to kind of act on and off. And, uh, she is maybe best known as one of the, um, uh, contestants, cast members. I don't really know of the, uh, real housewives of Beverly Hills. Oh, geez. So that's fun. (laughs) But um, anyway, I, I bring her up in particular because her sister is actually uh, one of the, um, I guess, 
catalysts question mark for the entire plot happening in uh, assault on precinct 13 and her sister is awful in that movie (laughs) she's really bad and uh kyle richards is actually kind of good in here like as a as a kid um tommy gets on my nerves a little bit i think a little Uh, bit i think but but he's a kid i i mean i guess i get it um moving on (laughs) charles cyphers is sheriff bracket um I wanted to bring him up because, uh, I mean, it's like you said earlier, he, it, I think he lends credence to the idea that the whole town is just this sleepy little Midwestern town where nothing ever happens. I really think that his performance is kind of understated. Um, I think he does a fantastic job. Um, yeah, I, I, the only other thing I wanted to mention, I just think it's funny that he, uh, oh, excuse me, he um, he scares Lori, right, in, like, the early parts of the movie, mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, I didn't mean to startle you, and then later, <laughs> he does the same exact thing to Dr. Loomis, and he's like, oh, I didn't mean to scare you, like, what do you like? You're just walking up behind people and like grabbing them on the shoulder. What the fuck did you think yeah, was going to happen? I was like, what is, is this like a weird, like creeper subplot? Like, what is this? And then that just went nowhere. Yeah. Uh, he's, I, I, I really find that funny, but I, I think he's great. Uh, again, like just leading credence to the fact that it's like a, a small town. Um, do you have anything to add? Not particularly. Um, okay. No, not really. He looked kind of familiar, but I'm looking at him now, and I, I don't, I don't see anything else I've seen. So. Yeah, he he actually worked a lot with Carpenter in the early days of his career. He was uh, in Assault on Precinct 13. He was in this. He was in uh, Escape from New York, and. Uh, one other one. Oh, he was in the the Elvis movie that um that John Carpenter did. Oh. Uh movie about Elvis. But uh yeah, so next uh next I've got here is um PJ Souls as Linda Vanderclock. Um I don't know really what to say other than I think that uh, she's hot in this movie. <laughs> like, I, I, she doesn't. Her character. I, I think you get the idea that like her character is just like this ditzy like blonde who like you know whatever. But like, and I, I think that PJ Souls does does a perfectly fine job doing that. But like, I I kind of hate her character. Um, because she is such a ditz. I, I don't know. Um, she seemed, I don't know, what, did, what did you think? She seemed pretty stereotypical. I think as for the performance, she did exactly what was expected. Like, I don't know what else you would do with that character. Like, um, I don't know. It felt it felt like a believable human being that I would never want to be around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I I totally get the idea. Like, PJ Souls in the in that aspect does a good job. I think like I could see this being a real person, but I kind of hate this person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um 
Oh, and yeah. can, I, can I say while we're between these two, I really uh -huh. appreciated that Michael took the time to set up like a little house of horrors in the bedroom. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he took the, I don't know how he mounted a body to fall from the ceiling. Yeah, and, then how, and, and not only to like have it fall, but have it fall on cue. Right, <laughs> and then have the door open up to reveal the other body, which was, yeah. it's not like he hit it because the other bodies weren't hidden. So like, <laughs> he like clearly <laughs> set up this thing. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, he's a he's a jokester that Michael Myers. Um. Next up is Annie, uh, Annie Brackett, who is Sheriff Brackett's daughter. This was played by Nancy Loomis at the time. Uh, I think her her actual like real name is Kias or something like that. But uh, she was billed as um, Nancy Loomis in this movie. Uh. I both love and hate Annie hmm. as a character. Um, I love her because she is, it's, so it's kind of weird. I feel like Annie is the one who should, f for lack of a better term, should be the hero of this movie. I feel like she's the one who has the most personality of the three girls. And I, I, totally by Nancy Loomis's performance in this one. Like I, this is not, not only is this like a real person, but I feel like I have known people just like Na uh, Annie. Yeah. Um, every time she was on screen, she felt like a totally believable, natural person. I -hmm. enjoyed the way she's just like screaming at her sister from the next thing while she's trying to get the phone or whatever. Like it all felt totally natural She's very charismatic. I enjoyed her on screen. Uh, not just the parts where she was stripping off her butter clothes. <laughs> um, which, by the way, that is the most impractical place for a laundry room. I got to go like yeah, out, yeah, out the front door through sense. the garden to the back shed where we have the laundry. Like, what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, by the way, Michael Myers is very good at locking doors without touching them. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so really good at locking with these flimsy little locks. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I liked her. She was good. Um, I don't I don't know that I've seen her in anything else at all. But, yeah, no, that, that character was fun. I, I, I enjoyed that. And like you say, I feel like there, she could have been the hero, um, even though she wasn't a virgin. So that's a, yeah. she, she had to die. Um, yeah. But, yeah, no, I, she was good. Yeah, I uh, the one thing I, I do did want to point out about her performance in particular, and it's something that I, again, it's one of those things that like I'm sure I've noticed subconsciously, but it never like necessarily stood out to me. I think her death scene is really, I think she does such a really great job in that sequence of like providing the actual like terror there, yeah. like the the very end where like you see her kind of like drop down like the, the windshield or whatever into the steering wheel. There's something in her eyes that like, it, like when I watched it this time, I was like, Oh, she's, she's like really dead. Like that woman is, is actually dead on screen. And I just, I, I think she's fantastic in this. Um, moving on. I think we have, uh, my favorite character of the movie, um, and that is Donald Pleasance as 
Dr. Samuel Loomis. Um, Another James I, Bond tie-in. Yeah, yeah. I Donald Pleasance is a terrific actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love him, and I love him in this movie. Um, I don't know how, how do you how do you feel? He was good. Um, he kind of reminded me. Did you? Uh, this is this is random. Did you ever watch The West Wing? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember the the no, the, the writer the what was his name? Uh, oh, I I I know who you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't remember his name, but I know, I know exactly who you're talking about. His mannerisms kind of reminded me of that guy, which I thought was uh, funny. Uh, Richard Schiff. Um, yes, that's his name. Toby yeah. in the West Wing. Uh, I just kept picturing, for some reason, like if, if right now if I had to replay scenes in my head, I would picture him, not Donald Pleasance. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was good. I, I, I thought it was kind of interesting how at the beginning he did seem kind of I don't know, like not caring about anything. Yeah. Like he didn't care about the, obviously he was his, his chief concern was there's this crazy guy and no one understands how crazy this guy is. And when he got there and there was a, a look like an escape, he was like, all right, this guy's probably out. We gotta, you know, we gotta focus on that. Not these people. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of grows as the film goes. So, like when I'm first watching it, I'm thinking, "Man, this guy is just a piece of shit doctor." And you find out he's just—he's <laughs> just so aware of how evil this guy is um, mm-hmm. that he's single. You know, so if I watch this movie again, I'll pick up on that stuff a lot better. I think. Um, but yeah, I thought it, I thought his performance was good. It very very one note kind of, but also, you know, it it added to the tension of the scene because he's the only one innocent who really understands what's happening yeah yeah i so the the thing i think about uh pleasance in this movie the reason that i think he kind of like stands out to me is like uh, i don't want to say a cut above the rest but the the reason that he really like stands out to me in particular is that like i feel like the character is written as this crazy person who's just shout like not shouting but like spouting like uh, almost like platitudes like i mean not really but like i think in the hands of almost anyone else who was working at that time this character would have come off as like an actual crazy person Hmm. but like I believe everything that Donald Pleasance is saying in this movie. I believe that he believes that Michael is evil. Yeah, he just and, he's the only one that understands the gravity of the situation. Yeah, and I just I I love Donald Pleasance in this. I, I he's great as Blofeld in um You only live twice. Yeah, you only live twice. Uh and he's uh he's great in like a ton of other things. I he's he worked with Carpenter on Escape from New York, which was like the movie he did right after this, and Prince of Darkness, and he's great in both of those movies also. But um, and one I don't, one thing ahead. with this character I really did appreciate to well tangent off this character is that I feel like most movies would have had him alone because nobody would take him seriously, but the cop mm-hmm. was still like he wasn't sure, but he was going to follow through. 
Like, yeah. the cop was yeah. like, okay, well, you know, we'll take this seriously. We'll, we'll go try to find this guy. And even if he was doubting a little bit, he's like, are you sure? He still did what he needed to do to find out. So I did appreciate that. I felt that was a lot more natural than what a lot of movies do. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is about, like, modern horror movies, but a lot of modern horror movies, they'll take, like, if someone's saying the same kind of stuff that Dr. Loomis is saying to, like, a a police officer or what have you that police officer will be like oh you're fucking crazy like sh- shut up i don't believe you i'm not going to do anything about this cuz you're obviously a crazy person but like sheriff brackett is totally like well this is my town like i if this guy is saying what what he's saying is true then i need to do something about it right. and i i love I, I love that um yeah i I don't have much more to say. Dr. Pleasance is awesome. Or Donald Pleasance is awesome. Dr. Loomis is awesome. Um, next up on the list, we had Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. Uh, this is the first, well, maybe not the first, but this is one of the, the first uh, instances of the final girl trope. You know, the virginal, like, goody two-shoes being the one who gets away. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think that there's much to, to say about her other than like I the one thing I said about Annie is I, you know, I believe her as a person and I believe her like I really believed her death scene. I believe that Jamie Lee Curtis is scared yeah. through the entire like last 15 minutes of this movie. For sure. I totally buy it. Um, I don't think that there's much for her to do outside of that though. On if I'm being completely honest, if there's one flaw that I think this series has is making her sort of like the, uh, I I guess protagonist of the series, like the the one through line, because I, I kind of don't think that there's much to latch onto here in terms of her character, other than the fact that she is, you know, responsible. Like she's a, she is that person who's coming out of high school and is going to be a productive member of society as an adult. Yeah. Um, um, talking about the fear, it's, it's kind of interesting because I just watched no spoilers, obviously, but I just watched Dune yesterday. Mm, nice. Fucking fantastic. But there's an actress in there. I won't say who or no, no spoilers, but there's an actress in there that I think portrays just pure fear better than anyone I've ever seen in a film. <laughs> like it's so tangible and believable. So this didn't quite stand out as much, <laughs> Yeah. but it was still good. I still bought it. Um, I, fi- I do find it funny that this is Jamie Lee Curtis. And in a movie where every woman gets topless, she doesn't. Yeah. I think that's yeah. when you look at some of her later movies. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I was going to say you, you yeah. had to wait for uh, what, what was the the spy movie? Oh, with Pierce Brosnan? Uh, no, with uh, with Schwarzenegger. Um, oh, oh uh, true, true Lies. True Lies. Yeah. yeah. Well, she's topless in that one. She's topless in, uh, what was it, Panama something? The Man, oh, yeah, yeah, man yeah, from yeah. Panama. It's Pierce Brosnan and Jeffrey Rush. Good movie. But still, um, yeah, I thought that was funny. I don't know. I've never... I'm going to be honest here. I've never been a big Jamie Lee Curtis fan. I think she's good. I don't think she's, I've never been smitten or anything like, Mm. so in this, I thought she was fine. She got the job done. I was convinced she was terrified, particularly in the scene where, um, Michael's bashing through the closet door. 
that was just some yeah classic mm. screaming woman back into a corner horror movie kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I thought it was good. I I particularly bought it. <laughs> it was so it it pissed me off so much when she's banging on the door for Tommy. And Tommy's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> clearly the boogeyman he's been seeing all day is walking across the street. And he's just like, huh, what? Uh, yeah, who's there? Fine, who's okay, this? open the door. Okay. Like, you stupid fuck. <laughs> it's like they're trading off who remembers that they've been stalked by this crazy guy all day. Yeah, yeah right. Um, but yeah, I definitely bought her, like, especially, uh, I, th- I thought it was kind of funny when she's banging on the, the old woman's door. Who turns yeah. on the porch light and looks out the window and is like, "Nah, this is a druggie or whatever." Yeah, I'm, yeah. That I I'm definitely bought her there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you said, in the last fifteen minutes, I, I really did think she did a good job with that. Yeah. I so I I think that she's she does a uh, I think she does a good job in here. I don't think that she like stands out the same way that like. Uh, Annie's character does, but I think she's fine. Uh, but to, I, I think to speak to your point, I I do think that like she's kind of overrated as an actress. Um, I, she got better as the years have gone on. Like I think a lot of her more recent roles, she's actually been very very good in. She's really good but, in uh, in uh, Activia commercials. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's another um, thing. It's really hard to take this seriously when half the time I'm thinking like. I've seen you talk oh. about how regular you are. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, oh, Lord. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, man. Um, but yeah, especially for, well, for a first role, for a first acting gig. This, yeah, this yeah. is good. Totally good. Th- that's a, yeah. I, I think that... it's hard to say, though, because obviously the character is very reserved and responsible and all that. But after you have mm-hmm. all the charisma coming from Annie it's kind of, you know, it's almost like I want to see more of Annie cause she's just more fun on the screen, I guess, but it's the yeah. character. It's what was written. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, uh, I guess the last thing that we need to get to, and we, we don't necessarily have to spend too much time on like characterization or anything like that. Cause he's not much of a character, but, uh, Nick Castle played, Michael Myers in this, um, except for obviously where he was a child that was played by someone else. And the scene at the end where Laurie actually takes his, uh, mask off, uh, the guy who was underneath the mask was, um, what the, what the hell is his name? Uh, Tony Moran. That's what it is. Is there a reason they did that? Uh, I don't know to be completely honest with you. Cause that's like when, Um, uh, in Star Wars, I'm going to blank on the names entirely, but the guy who played Darth Vader for all three wasn't, movies wasn't the yeah. guy who got unmasked, and he was kind of bummed about it, but George Lucas had a vision for how the guy was supposed to look, so I didn't know if, like, is Tony Moran, like, does he have that kind of mildly deformed face, or was that, yeah, was that I, makeup? I don't know. Like, why do they not just have the guy? I don't know. I, I mean, I'm looking at him right now, and he looks like a normal dude, so I genuinely have no idea why uh, he never, oh, why they just didn't use Nick Castle, but I don't know. Um, but the the reason I wanted to bring him up is, one, because it's Michael Myers. He's, like, the, 
iconic. He's one of the big three when people talk about horror movies, you know, it's Jason, Freddie, Michael, whatever. But, um, okay. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest here. I looked up uh pictures of, uh, young Nick Castle. Uh Uh-huh. I think, I don't want to say he's like a cross between goofy and attractive. So I don't think it would have been quite as, uh, (laughs) yeah, I don't think that reveal would have been quite, maybe that's why they did it, but yeah, that's, that's definitely possible for sure. Um, yeah. So the reason I wanted to bring him up is because I feel like part of the reason that this movie works as well as it does is not only because they kind of make Michael appear like a ghost where like he's somewhere and then he's not somewhere sort of thing. I think it's also has to do with the fact that like when you watch later sequels with the exception of, I think two, who was uh fuck who who played Michael in two? Um, I want to say, I want to say it was Dick something, Dick Warlock maybe. Um, yeah, Dick Warlock. That's who it was. Okay, so with the exception of two, where he is like five foot, like seven or something like that. Um. Michael is the smallest in this movie. The rest of the movies make him this just gigantic looking like, like big fucking dude that like, I don't necessarily think is, um, necessary because I think that what partially makes this work is that he, the height and like the kind of like skinny, like sort of frame make him seem like he's just a dude, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and so it, it kind of adds to the supernatural element and even just like simple stuff, like the way that he stalks, like there's the one scene it's, uh, after Annie gets out of the car and is walking into the house and he's stalking her and the way he just kind of like glides around the tree and he's very like, like, uh, I don't know what the actual word would be for it, but it's almost like ethereal. Like he like he just kind of like glides. And I love the way that Nick Castle moves in this. Yeah. And this for me is the bar by which all other Michaels are set because he does have this almost like ghostly sort of like quality to him. Um, did you, I mean, did you latch onto any of that? Yeah, I thought he was definitely a terrifying presence. And I think what I, what I really appreciated was that, again, a modern horror film probably would have emphasized the fact that he is mentally, uh, what would you call it? Handicapped? Unstable. Unstable, <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's insane. Um, and they would have had him having like anguish and like all this tried to show his emotion through the mask and like maybe he's conflicted or maybe he's just trying to get something out and express something through these murder. No, this dude is here to do business and that business is murdering people and that's mm-hmm. it. And it's very straightforward. It makes him so much more menacing because there's nothing to latch on to relatable to this character. Like even in the beginning when you see him as a kid, it's just a blank nothing expression murderer yeah right and so all through the film you're it it's it's very matter of fact um the one thing i found interesting is like 
so and they never described this and again it does add to this kind of supernatural element of it where like okay so he was what six yeah okay, six so he's six and then he's in prison for 17 years or in the the hospital for 17 years and yeah. he's described as sitting in a box staring at a wall being patient waiting for this day right yeah why this halloween versus others i don't know but man he is strong for having done nothing but sat in a box staring yeah. at a wall <laughs> yeah. and he knows how to yeah. drive cars really well yeah. like he's a really good driver he's pretty safe anyways um <laughs> you know things like that but uh no i just I, I feel like he always felt menacing and focused he was he was just constantly moving towards you um yeah and they didn't need to put in any other bullshit into depth for the character or whatever. It just was what it was, and it worked. And I thought it was really good. And I, a lot of that goes to just exactly, like you said, how Nick Castle was moving as the character. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually love that you brought up uh, earlier in, uh, when we were talking, you kept bringing up, like, you brought up Jaws, and you brought up, like, um, something else, but, like, uh, having to do with sharks. And, like, I almost feel like that's what Michael Myers is in this movie, is he's almost like a shark, just, like, like just completely focused on what he's doing. Well, that's, it's, it's like, I think I said this earlier, it's like a predator hunting. Yeah. Just single minded in what they're going for. No thought, no, no sympathy, no, no, no hesitation, just a carefully, uh, you know, a careful predator stalking a prey. Yeah. And it didn't need to be anything else. So it works. I, I wholeheartedly agree, and I think, uh, I, again, I, I, part of that is the writing for Michael, where it's not too complicated, and part of it, I think, is is the performance of Nick Castle as the the shape. Um, but yeah, uh, so I think that's pretty much everything, so let's, uh, I guess, get into our final thoughts. Uh, I'll, I'll let you go first. Uh, we'll do... We'll do a rating. Let's do, I don't know what, um, how many ever pumpkins out of five? Tits out of ten. Um, Tits out of ten. I thought this was great. This was a good time. Um, I like that it was a simple story. It was just 90 minutes. Like, it didn't need to extend it out. Uh, The one thing I find really interesting as I go back to movies that are in some ways considered horror... um, you know, I haven't seen that many, but even even something like The Shining, right? Which is mm-hmm. when it came out, I'm sure Halloween was a horror movie in 1978. I'm sure this freaked people out. Today, it feels like, you know, in comparison to everything we see, this felt like just a really good suspense thriller. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't unnecessarily gruesome and bloody. I mean, there was blood, but it, it felt just like a really good, fun story give you some scares and and have a good time with it um i had a blast watching it uh which i don't know if i were to watch any of the later movies i don't know if it'd be the same like i mean i don't know if they over definitely would not (laughs) overcomplicate things or whatever i don't know it's just it was a, a surprisingly enjoyable movie for me that you know typically i think of horror as one thing and I don't know, again, maybe by 2021 standards, this isn't really even a horror movie. It's a suspense or thriller or something. Um, 
But yeah, I had a blast watching this. It was fun. I'll watch this again probably. I may even go watch the new the sequel. Uh, not not Ooh. not not kills, but the twenty eighteen whatever. The twenty eighteen. Yeah, twenty eighteen is is solid. It's a yeah. solid little movie. It was fun. Um, I would probably give this. I don't know. I'd probably give this like an eight out of ten. Okay. I don't. There are little nitpicks. This isn't my favorite movie I've ever seen, but I had a, a really good time watching this. I thought it was good. That's awesome. I, I straight up, I was. <laughs> I'm really glad that like this is something that you enjoyed because I was expecting you to be like, oh god damn it, this motherfucker's making me watch Halloween. Fully like, oh, oh, oh. how I was going into it, but <laughs> and then and then I was expecting you to come in here and be like. Yeah, this is like there's so many problems with it, so many nitpicks. I kind of hated this movie. Five out of ten. <laughs> it's exactly what I did with uh, Alien, where I finally watched it. And I was like, because I, for Alien, I had seen Prometheus, because I didn't know uh-huh. it was an Alien movie. So, oh okay, I just went on like a double date to go see Prometheus, and all of us were confused as shit. Um, oh yeah. And then, so I just didn't bother with the rest of the franchise. And then a few months ago for reasons, I watched alien and, uh, I was like, Oh, this is actually, this is pretty good. This is good. I like this. Oh, huh. Look at this. Yeah. Alien for me, if, if it's not a perfect movie, it's very, very fucking close. Um, I, yeah. Well, Blade Runner, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, totally fair. Um, well, I guess so. With that said, oh, uh, oh yeah, you went eight out of ten. Okay, yep. um, so I I feel like I think I said uh, my thoughts immediately when I introduced this. I think this movie's a masterpiece. Um, I think that this movie is perfect. Uh, even when I go in and I look at things with like little nitpicks and stuff like that, I like, I always think about how I feel when I watch it. And there's like this, uh, now this is going to sound weird and, and maybe a little bit sadistic, but, uh, I have this sort of like glee when I watch this movie. And again, maybe, maybe some of that comes back with like nostalgia for, you know, seeing it when I was a kid and stuff like that. But there's... I feel like this movie works because of how simplistic it is or not simplistic. Sorry. Simple. It is. It literally is just someone stalking babysitters on Halloween night. And it listen, there are things that don't like I, I don't really get scared watching horror movies anymore because I've seen so fucking many of them. And there are things that just, don't like uh, there are very few things that actually scare me. And most of those are like psychological stuff. Um, like uh, I'm definitely terrified of heights and I really don't like the dark. (laughs) I don't like maneuvering around in, in pitch black, but like this movie still like gets me sometimes. Like I will feel chills go up my spine because there are parts of this movie that are like, legitimately like creepy and scary and it's totally effective. Uh, I think that the cast from top to bottom does a great job. Even if some of the characters I don't like, uh, I think that it looks and feels like Halloween. It, it is beautiful. And 
uh, I don't know. It's again, for me, it's, it's a perfect movie. It's my favorite horror movie of all time. Uh, and I don't know much more I can say about it. Um, I think this is very easy for me. 10 tits out of 10 or <laughs> five pumpkins out of whatever, like whatever the rating is. It's perfect On for me. On a scale of Linda's boobs to Annie's boobs. <laughs> uh, uh, well, since since you don't see Annie's boobs, I'll go Linda's boobs. Okay, okay, got it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I th- I, to your point, I think that Somehow, like, okay, so one of the horror movies I have seen was, I saw it on, like, a date in high school. I saw The Unborn. Oh, yeah. Which was a piece yeah, of shit. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, but, yeah, like, not okay, very good. so the plot of that movie is, like, what is it? Her, her, she's pregnant, and it's, like, her, her infant is demon-possessed. The, f- the fetus is, like, possessed by a demon yeah. or something. It's so out there and ridiculous. And not that there's not room for those kind of movies. But there's something about Halloween that, like, all that's happening is a guy walks into the house and fucking stabs you. Like, that is something everyone can be terrified of, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people are terrified of of having their baby demon-possessed inside of them. (laughs) Or, like, another one I've seen was The Eye with Jessica Alba, where she gets an eye implant. I've seen some shit. Uh, but like, it's so outlandish and like out there that it's not relatable, but this is. And so it adds to that, that sense of fear when you're watching it. Um, and even the parts, like, even when I was watching and like Bob gets stabbed and is held against the wall with like a a half inch of a knife or whatever, even though that's not realistic i was still having a blast and laughing my ass off watching it it was still a fun watch like Mm -hmm. so even those little more unrealistic parts were just fun and even at the end like i'm kind of bummed that you said all the the other movies afterwards are bad because at the end when uh michael escapes or whatever he disappears i was like oh Mm -hmm. shit what does he do next i gotta i want to watch more (laughs) of this shit but like apparently they're all bad until the one that came out 40 years after the fact but yeah. Uh, but yeah like I, it's it's just a fun movie i don't know what else to say whether it's whether it gets you totally scared or you're just having fun watching it it's it's hard to deny that it's a good time yeah that's well put sir um you should uh if you like this one you should give give part two a try um it's a it's a little bit bloodier but it almost and it wasn't directed by by john carpenter but it almost feels like a a very good continuation of this movie Hmm. um there's some parts in it that are kind of like meh well you know whatever like um, i read the i read a bit of the summary and it takes place like immediately after right yeah Yeah, it it follows up immediately afterwards and it mostly takes place in a hospital Hmm. um which actually has some some good payoffs to it but uh yeah, you, you, if you like this one, you should give it a give it a shot. I, I wouldn't probably bother with the rest of the sequels because I really don't think that you would like them. I think that I <laughs> I have a feeling that you would call those hot trash. Okay. Um, but uh, but two is actually pretty good, and then the the twenty eighteen is pretty good. Hmm. All right, I'll um, check those out. Yeah, but but that's it for us. Um, so. As always, you can find us on social media for all things Culture Bop, Culture Bop Selects, and the Culture Bop family of content. Uh, Culture Bop is available on Twitter at Culture underscore Bop. 
Instagram at culture underscore pop and on YouTube at culture pop. Uh, I am available on the Twitters at the bebop man one eight two on Instagram at bebop man one eight two and eventually I'll be back on Twitch at the underscore bebop man. Finally, we have Mr. Gilbeezy who just has an Instagram. It is at Gilbeezy Skit. That is G I L B E E Z Y S K I T. Finally, if you're looking to support this podcast or any of the endeavors that we're undertaking as Culture Bop, then go to patreon.com slash culture and toss us a pledge. Uh, we're offering some very cool perks. And, you know, once we start hitting our goals, even more content will be on its way. Uh, I want to go ahead and take the time to do a special shout out for our patrons who make this podcast possible. We've got Mr. Justin Ruiz, Shereen Khan, Tani Solman, Jeffrey Scissorto and Blake Graham. Uh, yeah, that's it for us. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, and we will be, Oh wait, uh, sorry. I forgot about, um, what we are talking about next week. That's two weeks in a row. I forgot that. Um, so, uh, for next week, we will be diving into the, Graphic novel from 1987, oh, series of comic books, whatever. Uh, the Watchmen. So be prepared for that. Um, but yeah, so that is it. That is the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. And until then, goodbye. Seems to me you're just plain scared. Yes. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face, the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil.